Today's episode is sponsored by Journey, the travel company taking the hassle out of going away. I genuinely think this is such an exciting concept. So you start by filling in a free questionnaire, completing a list of questions to find out the vibe you want for your trip. Yeah, like on a scale of one to five, how much do you like outdoor activities, being in nature, visiting charming villages or going to museums or art galleries? So Journey can get a feel for your travel tastes. I mean, personally, museums are a hard no, but sign me up for a charming village. That is why you can also select from a list of activities which are a no-go for you, like scuba diving or wine tasting. Though I'm not sure why anyone would say no to wine tasting. Mm. Crucially, you can also set your budget and let them know of any phobias or medical conditions which need to be considered. Once they have all this information, the Journey team will curate your trip proposal, avoiding all the tourist traps, taking you on an adventure you probably wouldn't have chosen for yourself, but a great fit for you. From your proposal, you can decide whether to book your trip or not. It's that simple. And here's the best bit. You don't find out where you're going until you get to the airport. But how will I know what to pack? Oh, don't worry. You'll be given a packing list, but the reading list is down to you. So what I'm hearing is there's zero organisation needed from me and Journey will plan a trip tailored to my preferences. Seriously, how can I sign up for this? Just head to www.journeytrips.com. That's journey spelled J-O-U-R-N-E-E trips.com for more info. The link is also in the show notes. Welcome to Book Recos Between the Pages. I'm Jess. And I'm Lauren. And we're the power behind Book Recos. This is the podcast where we chat all things books and just about everything in between. Today we have the pleasure of being joined by Lauren Bravo, journalist and author of How to Break Up with Fast Fashion and What Would the Spice Girls Do, to chat about her latest fictional book, Pre-Loved. It's a beautiful novel set in and around a charity shop in London, publishing on the 27th of April in the UK. And with the title, The Second Chance Store in the US on July 4th. Welcome to the Book Records podcast, Lauren. We're absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. I'm delighted. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your latest book, if that's all right. Could you start just by telling our listeners what your lovely new book, Pre-Loved, is all about? Well, um, okay, it's a story of a woman called Gwen. She is in her late 30s. Actually, they're marketing it as mid-30s, but she's 38, which I think is... Yeah, I think that's (laughs) And we meet her when she has um, just been made redundant from a job that she didn't particularly love anyway. But she kind of feels like her life has stalled a little bit. So a lot of her friends have drifted away, as people tend to do. They've kind of moved to the suburbs to have babies, etc. Um, she's a little bit estranged from her family for reasons that we kind of find out during the book. Um, she is still not really over a big breakup that she had quite a few years ago. And she's just lost her job. And so she's feeling pretty lost. Um she ends up making a little list to try and get her life back on track. One of the points on which is getting rid of a bin bag full of her ex-fiance's stuff that she's been hanging on to for an embarrassing long amount of time. (laughs) 
that leads her to a charity shop and um, she then begins volunteering in the shop. And so her story is kind of intercut with lots of these little vignettes which tell the story of objects in the shop. So how they came to be donated and um, who goes on to buy them. And yeah, the sub, the uh, tagline is a love story about things. That's kind of the easiest way. Nice. To yeah, that's great. And it so is. And so, I mean, obviously you've written a lot about fast fashion. Uh, mm-hmm. with a whole book about how to break up with it. Um, and it, I'm assuming it's a topic you're quite passionate about. Um, and that it might have been the inspiration for setting your lovely book in a charity shop. Is that the case or is there more to it? And can you share? Yeah, kind of. I mean, look, I've already, I've always loved charity shops my whole life. So not necessarily from any kind of ethical perspective, but I've just, I love treasure hunting in them. My parents are really into charity shops. They still are. They plan all their holidays around like where has the most charity shops. Love that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So I kind of grew up with a bit of a fondness for them. And I've always kind of sum them up as a place to be when you've got nowhere else to be whether that is you know just a port in the storm a refuge from the rain when you're waiting for (laughs) calm and it's pissing it down or you know on a slightly deeper level um people who feel a little bit lost perhaps people who you know want to meet other people or in my case I started volunteering in a shop um five years ago just to get myself away from my laptop screen you know I was like self-employed it's quite isolating yeah to do something that kind of makes me feel like I'm in touch with a community you know give something back as well obviously all of that um and I as soon as I started volunteering I just thought well actually this would be an amazing setting for a book because charity shops attract people from and I know it's a cliche but all walks of life Um, and and everyone has their own reason for being there everyone has their own reason for shopping there for volunteering there and yeah I just think you know there's a lot of hidden stories in the the stuff that people give away as well. So that was really what sparked it. Obviously, there is a bit of a sustainability thread in the book, but I don't want people to think that it's like sustainable fashion, the novel. Um, (laughs) I I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's what I've written. I hope it is. Yeah, no, it's definitely more of a love letter to charity shop than you must go to them for sure. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. And as you say, it's these, when you go into a charity shop, everything's got these little hidden stories. And just as you were saying at the beginning, you've got the book is peppered with these beautiful little visionettes of um, snippets of people's lives and how they came to uh, get a specific object or a piece of clothing and what their journey with that object was and how they then came to part with it. And then at the beginning, you know, you sort of read the book and you think these are, oh, these are just like a nice little break from the storyline. But actually, the more you read, you start to see how it's all coming full circle and the objects sort of find their ways into different characters in their lives. And that was really quite magical because you could sort of see how they um, had a little journey of their own. Was that something, did you start writing with the book with that idea or I'm interested to know at what point did those little pieces come to be so actually it was a device that I found got me into writing the book most easily so um you know fiction was really daunting for me I'd I'd written a couple of non-fiction books I'm a journalist by trade I you know the idea of having to dream up a load of sort of make-believe stuff I found quite intimidating and I'm also 
I'm really good at starting stories, but not very good at ending. <laughs> so in a way, it kind of appealed to me as a, a, a quite a lazy writer that I could write these little vignettes and just be like, here's a snapshot. But I don't necessarily need to decide what actually happens to this person. You know, it's just a little a little glimpse into someone's life. Um, and the more I started writing those, the more I thought, oh, actually, yeah, I can I can build a story around them and kind of weave them in and out of the plot. And I liked the idea that, you know, when you're in a charity shop or when you're sifting through stuff, maybe in your own home to like give away, it's always hard to know what to hold on to and what yeah. to get from. Because yeah. you never necessarily know. It's not always the most expensive dress in your wardrobe or, you know, the the fanciest piece of kit or whatever in your kitchen that you're going to use the most. And I thought there was something quite nice about almost replicating that in in a novel. So when you're reading the book, you don't know which of those object stories mm. are ones that are going to become important in the plot. You just have to keep reading and then some of them will kind of pop up and some of them will actually become quite intrinsic to Gwen's story. Ah. Um, and I just thought that was quite fun to sort of keep the reader guessing uh, so they don't immediately know. And I think that's the same when you're secondhand shopping, isn't it? Like it might be a really dusty unassuming old object on a shelf that could actually be the thing that you need in your life see what yeah. you did there love that <laughs> I mean I'm retrofitting that I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I knew I was going to do that from the beginning no no no. people don't need to know that we'll yeah. cut that bit out it was all on purpose <laughs> so speaking of Gwen's story then let's chat a bit about Gwen mm-hmm. um firstly I feel like I share a lot of traits with her um one of them really made me laugh was never trusting people with obvious nicknames that refer to themselves with their full name, like Thomas or Kimberly. I get really offended when I sign off an email, Jess, and then someone writes back, hi, Jessica. I'm like, no, yeah. <laughs> so clearly me. I always feel bad if I accidentally do that to somebody else, you know, sometimes yeah. looking at the email address and, you know, you don't notice they've signed it off with a nickname. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I'm glad because I, I thought maybe... Me. I didn't know if that was a relatable trait, but I always think, yeah, yeah. you meet someone who's like, hi, I'm Thomas. It's like, no, come on, you're Tom. Come on. <laughs> really? you Cut down those syllables, please, Thomas. Yeah, so yeah. very much identified with that. Um, and like, to me, she's like such a real person. She's also like a perfect protagonist and someone that's like so easy to root for. So I just wondered if you could chat a bit about Gwen and how she came to be and um, how you brought her to life. Oh, well, thank you. I'm really glad that she sort of, yeah, struck a chord. Um, Gwen, weirdly, I came up with her, well, the bare bones of her anyway, the name Gwendolyn Grundle, which is a ridiculous name for (laughs) who's meant to be living in the real world, let's be honest, but I just loved it. Um, I came up with her name when I was about 21. It was the summer after I'd finished uni. Um, I was unemployed. And I was doing a lot of like sitting around in coffee shops with a notebook, like trying to write my novel. Um, (laughs) I had no job and nothing else to do. And I just came up with this name and sort of a few kind of ideas about who she was as a person and like wrote a few notes down and then did absolutely nothing about it um, until (laughs) the pandemic. Um, I sort of had again had no work and started thinking about a novel and um immediately just reach for this character that I guess had been sitting in the back of my head for wow. more than a decade like an item in a charity shop 
yeah exactly that's me yeah thank you I'll use that rather than the truth which is just that I wasn't imaginative enough to come up with another character (laughs) (laughs) work smarter not harder yeah just dust her off take her out of storage exactly yeah so yeah so I kind of had this idea of who she was I liked the idea of writing a protagonist who was a bit older actually because I kind of felt like we've had a lot of novels about women in their late 20s feeling lost and actually I was like well I know a lot of amazing women in their mid-30s late 30s you know who actually don't feel that different you know maybe they have they've got more life experience they know who they are a little bit more strongly but you're just as capable of winding up a little bit lost or feeling like your life has stalled a little bit. Um, and I mean, it's funny when I started writing the book, I think I was what, like 32 or something. So writing somebody five years older than me, six years older than me, felt like quite a reach. But now I'm 35. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's the same. We're all the same. You know, yeah. really does. it makes no difference. <laughs> she'll be 48 and she'd probably still be feeling a lot of the same stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, Gwen is... She could be a bit of a curmudgeon. I, I kind of liked the idea of writing a heroine who, you know, sometimes she's kind of her own worst enemy. Mm. Um, she has a thing that is very much, you know, lifted from my own head, which is called the void. Um, and essentially it's when, you know, when you you need to like text a friend back and for some reason you just can't make yourself do it. Yeah. And I can resonate with that. Okay. <laughs> are you another are you another bad yeah I'm an avoidant through and through right me too and it's (laughs) because you know that you love that friend and you want to send that message and you would be happier as a person if you had a bit more of that kind of contact whatever but things just fall into this void in the back of our brain and you can't reach them and it's the same for Gwen so you know a lot of her friends have drifted away through other reasons that she has no control over but also she's just sort of found herself finding it harder and harder to reach out and um it it also goes for things like booking a dentist appointment she's not been to the dentist for years she knows she needs to lots of those little things have kind of added up um and so I thought it was interesting to explore I guess the extreme results of that like what happened kind of let your life just fall down the back of the sofa a little bit how do you get it back out again yeah definitely and I think like you say, there are so many sides to her character that I think lots of readers will identify with, not least just the void. But um, one of her, I think, one being is her deep need to please others. Mm-hmm. And it's from very superficial scenarios, like I think many women will relate to, like going on a date with a man she's actually quite repelled to just because he asked her. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a scene where she like, she's on a date with him she's repelled by him and then she goes to the bathroom and sees like a glob of mascara on her face and she for a minute gets really worried that he's going to be turned off by her um and then there are more like detrimental scenarios where she people pleases in her own like family dynamics so I think really a key message that came away from me from your book is just how detrimental it can be when you spend more time worrying about what other people might think rather than just focusing on living your life and can you talk to a little bit more about that topic in terms of Gwen's sort of character's journey absolutely and it's funny you should bring that up because actually the next novel that I'm working on at the moment is very much about people pleasing oh wow 
I hadn't even realized, I think, that I'd explored it quite so much in pre-loved. But you're right, like it's definitely a big part of Gwen's journey is reaching a point where you know, she knows how to say no. Um, she has a friendship. Well, she forms a lot of friendships through the shop, but particularly one with a woman called Connie, who um, is about 30 years older than Gwen. And she's one of those brilliant people who, I'm sure we've all known them in our real lives, who never has a shred of self-doubt. You know, yeah. she, um, she's very forceful with her opinions. She sees Gwen very much as a bit of a lost soul that it's her job to rescue. She gives her a lot of advice. And at first, this is very welcome for Gwen. You know, she um, gets a lot from this friendship. But as the book kind of progresses, gradually that friendship turns a little bit toxic. And um, Connie's interference in Gwen's life is actually eventually the catalyst that kind of leads Gwen to realise that she needs to stop people pleasing, stop um, doing things just because other people want her to. And and I guess just establish what she really wants in life and um, set some hashtag boundaries, which <laughs> is quite timely. And yeah, and again, with, you know, going on this date with Nicholas, who is not a bad guy, you know, I was really careful when I was writing him, I was like, I want to make him quite repellent, but only in quite a superficial way. Mm. You know what I mean? He's not like a, he's not a villain. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, I wanted Gwen to go on a bit of a journey where she realises towards the end that she's actually treated him quite badly. Yeah through her people pleasing. And I think that's really interesting. I think if you are a people pleaser, um, and uh, you know, I am, I don't know if that's <laughs> coming across. But... Oh, it's very much for me. I cannot wait to pre-order your next book and hopefully like treat it as some sort of therapy. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, if you are a people pleaser, you know that it's not necessarily because you're a great person. Like often people pleasing comes from quite a selfish point because you want everyone to love you all the time. Yeah. You to be popular you know you're not brave enough to kind of make any enemies at all and I think that um again that was something I wanted to to make clear with the charity shop people don't volunteer in charity shops because they're saints some of them are you know some people are, are absolutely wonderful but also everyone's kind of got a bit of self-interest as well and that's fine and I thought that was an interesting thing to an interesting point I wanted to kind of make in the book as well so I guess mm. that's into Gwen's journey it's like well you know, people pleasing often ends up causing more hurt. Yeah. Way because you're not being honest and you're leading people on. And eventually that kind of house of cards is going to collapse. Agreed. So I think there's a, a bit of Jess and I in both in, in all of these in all of these examples. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um as you say, you sort of go on a journey with Gwen as she starts to come to lots of realizations around her own her own sort of um role she's playing in her life not being where she wants to be and it's not just you know circumstantial and although Connie turns out to be the catalyst to from you know sort of a toxic relationship there are parts of Connie's character as well that has really taught Gwen to like take on some of that much more masculine energy and the, for example, just she observes just how easily Connie can kick her out of her house and mm. do it in a way that is, you know, not rude, not offensive, just to the point. Do you have a Connie of your own <laughs> who helped bring this character to life? Oh, Because I think we all need a Connie. To an extent. <laughs> so I don't I don't have a Connie, um, but I think I was able to quite clearly imagine this woman because I pieced her together 
um, using bits of different women in my life. And I've, yeah. definitely, I've got, I have some wonderful friends who are more in Connie's, of Connie's generation. They're not, you know, they don't embody any of Connie's toxic traits. Let me <laughs> very clear. They are <laughs> lovely people through and through. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something I have really admired in, in friends, particularly older women, but not necessarily, they don't have to be older, but people who have that ability to just tell it like it is but they mm. don't hurt anyone's feelings so yeah the thing you're referring to is when Connie's had her around for dinner um and Gwen it gets to you know 11 o'clock or whatever and Connie just goes right it's my bedtime let's get you a taxi and Gwen's just amazed at the ease with which this woman yeah like, okay you need to leave my house now I'm done I'm I've <laughs> company please go home and yet she doesn't feel hurt by it and Gwen like Mar- yeah and I think yeah, I definitely observe that in other people. Um, and it's something I'm really in awe of and a trait that I still haven't quite mastered is just being able to be very honest or say no to people. You know, when mm-hmm. someone messages you and asks you to do something and you know that you don't want to, you know you might cancel, you're probably going to cancel. But I'm incapable of not being like, yeah, sounds great. That's great. <laughs> and then thinking, God, I'll just have to come up with an excuse near the time to not go. Um, myself in a web of lies, yeah. My version of um, the Connie, um, right, let's get you out, let's get your taxi home, is I saw I got like a targeted ad on Instagram for a cushion that said, please leave by 9pm. Yeah. And I found myself really contemplating, like, should I should I get that? Yes. <laughs> but, you know, let's just be more upfront about these things. Well, I tried to embody Connie and it was thanks to Connie. I had some people over for like a late breakfast thing Ooh. on the weekend, neighbours, and I don't think they'll listen. <laughs> And I was like, um, how can you get someone out when it's not your bedtime? Because it was like yeah, 1 p.m. I was like, breakfast can and, just we, and we just eaten. Day. So it's not like I could use lunch as an excuse. I was like, how do I get rid of them? And I was really like, come on, be be that Connie, like find a way. What I, would I, Connie I, do? Yeah, I was literally like, what would Connie do? Um, what did you say? I just stopped asking them questions. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to have this be an engaging chat anymore. Like they should then acknowledge like, okay, chat's dying down, time to leave. Good. Well done. I tell you what is useful for this as well, having a two month old baby. Because, oh, great uh, excuse. Yeah, we've just found, and most people know the rule when you come to visit someone with a baby, you only stay for like an hour or two anyway, and then you leave. Yeah. But if they don't, she will generally either start screaming or great. do Enormous shit. Yeah. <laughs> Both really effective. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I probably can't get away with anything either. No. So no, I'll just I'm stop asking questions. Yeah. yeah. It's not very <laughs> applicable to adult company. I'm sorry. No. Well, Lawrence Cushion might be a good idea because actually I want to pick up on a different cushion that's mentioned in the book um, because I'd say mental health is a pretty big theme of this book. And I'm actually just going to read a little extract from page 106, which is linked to a cushion. So it's a very tenuous link here. Um, but it says, what is that thing my niece has written on a hideous cushion? It's okay not to be okay. Gwen secretly hated this adage, which had swelled up in the past few years through online think pieces and pop lyrics and entire Disney Pixar movies until it often felt to her that a whole generation was more concerned with reassuring each other it was fine to stay in their mutual pits of gloom than with helping each other climb out of them. And she does go on to say, like, look, I get it. Like, it's a nice phrase <laughs> and it is fine. But then it's it's when she says it wasn't OK not to be OK. That was the very definition of not OKness. 
I was like, God, this is like so me. This is me and Gwen again. Like I, that's something I always think about all the time. Like it is fine to be sad and you should never be made to feel that you can't be, but it's, it's also okay to try and be happy. <laughs> it's such a fine balance. And so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more about it because obviously as well, it's so intrinsic. The way you've linked trauma to items in a charity shop like I'd never really thought about it but of course that would be linked to it like her giving away the bin bag of her ex's stuff there's so much Mm. emotion in that bin bag and then like you know if somebody dies and you pass on their things to a charity shop there's just yeah it's so cleverly done and I just wanted to be chat about it a little bit better than I have (laughs) oh thank you I mean yeah I don't think I could have written a book that didn't have mental health in it somewhere because it feels like not just my own personal experiences, but it's just so much a part of the discourse these days, isn't it? And rightly so, you know, I think we've we've obviously come a a long, long way in the last like few years in terms of openly talking about about mental health struggles. But I'm glad you liked that that section that you read because I felt quite nervous, I think, putting that in the book in case it almost, I don't know, upset people or- I thought the same thing bringing it up here. I was like, people are going to be cross with me. Just like me, please. I know, I know. (laughs) I guess it's easy when you can hide behind a protagonist yeah. who is oh, yeah. contention. I'm just like, well, I don't think that. That's Gwen's thought. Um, but yeah, it's some, you know, it's a thought I've had a lot every time I've kind of read that phrase over the last few years. It's okay not to be okay, which is always like, yeah, but I don't want to not be okay. I want to yeah. be okay. Is that not, is that too much to ask? And it does feel like sometimes the conversation can be quite, um self-perpetuating almost you know Mm. we end up in these what's the phrase I've used mutual pits of gloom where we're sort of constantly reassuring each other it's okay to be sad but we're not necessarily finding the tools to help ourselves feel better um and you know I think again that was part of Gwen's journey in the book is going okay well the first thing is making peace with the fact that she has been through a lot of trauma in her life and far more than than I have been in my own life um so that was quite a stretch to to write as well um and you know the first stage is her realizing that actually yeah she is carrying around a lot of emotional baggage and physical baggage um that she needs to kind of offload and I think her friendship with Connie obviously helps her do that Connie forces her to talk about some of that trauma um and it is quite cathartic but that's not the end of the story you know there needs Mm. to come another step and that next step is going okay well what tools do I actually need to feel happier and to kind of kickstart my life again and it is things like reaching out to her best friend who she's kind of become not even estranged from but they've just you know their friendships just kind of dried up a little bit it's just become a bit estranged in the way that it often does when you're in your 30s and life is happening and you know most of your communication is digital um so yeah it's reaching out to her it's finding herself a job that she actually feels passionate about um it's you know things like not going on dates with boys that make her feel sick purely because they've asked um and actually yeah assembling that kind of toolkit is potentially more helpful I think to Gwen in the long run than cushions that say it's okay not to be okay if that's not too controversial a statement (laughs) (laughs) it's so true and addressing the 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 void essentially Mm. is what she starts to do because whenever you do address it and you do the actions in the void that you've been putting off they're never as bad as you think they are and you you do and you're like why was I worried about that for so long but she had to reach a stage in her life where that 
was possible and recognize that that's something that she's doing so I, I, to Jess's point, I think you've just perfectly balanced writing a book which addresses very, very challenging topics like mental health and loss and grief, but in a way that's also very uplifting, essentially through some really beautiful and very endearing characters because you root for them and, you know, you want them to 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 do better and be better. And it's also a bit of a love story to charity shops. So. I want to bring us back now to um, how to break up with fast fashion, if that's okay, which was, was it your first book? It was my second, actually. Your second book. Um, What would the Spice Girls do? (laughs) That's right. Yes. (laughs) Bit different. different. Would you mind telling listeners who haven't read it what how to break up with fast fashion is all about and what led you to writing that book? Sure. Um, So how to break up with fast fashion is essentially a kind of, well, the the tagline is a guilt-free guide to changing the way you shop for good so I wanted to write something that um was like an introduction to people who knew that they wanted to change their shopping habits but at the same time felt quite overwhelmed by the badness of everything and just how much like you know doom laden uh information there is out there that you know a few years ago I, I wrote the book in 2019 it came out at the beginning of 2020 um that stuff was only just starting to become widely known really you know I think we were still at a point where most people Mm. didn't really know the environmental the environmental impact of our shopping habits and I didn't really either um until quite shortly before I started writing the book so you know like I said I've always shopped in charity shops I wore a lot of vintage when I was growing up um but over the course of my 20s I got very much sucked into the sort of fast fashion machine as I think a lot of people did um that decade and I was buying more and more and more clothes but they weren't making me happy you know I felt like I I constantly had nothing to wear Mm -hmm. even though I had drawers and cupboards overflowing with like shit from Zara and H&M that I'd worn a few times and then I'd washed it and it shrunk and it like (laughs) threads had started coming unraveled and um I knew that fashion yeah my fashion habits weren't making me happy at the same time I was sort of starting to wake up to the environmental impact and the ethical cost of our clothes you know I watched the documentary a true cost um the true cost which is I would say you know a must-see thing for anybody who who wants to kind of know more about um the way that our clothes are made and the people that suffer to make them that cheap um and I started to change my own habits I uh decided to go on a kind of year-long challenge hashtag not new year's my friend the author Daisy (laughs) came up with and we did it together where for the whole of 2019 I didn't buy any brand new clothes so I only bought a bit of second hand and that was it and I had to just live with the clothes I already had in my wardrobe um and I honestly didn't think I would last three months but actually once I got into it I realized that it was a much more joyful way to dress and shop you know and I I found that I kind of rediscovered my own personal style again I felt a bit more confident in what I actually wanted to wear rather than just wearing stuff because you know the high street had told me that I had to wear it this week um or whatever and at the same time as taking on that challenge I actually got approached to write a a book about sustainable fashion something that was going to be very accessible and my first thought was, well, no, because I'm not good enough to write this yet. You know, I've only just sort of started this journey myself. I'm not an expert in sustainability. I'm certainly, you know, only a couple of years ago, I was writing Sponcon for Primark. So I, I I can't write this book. And then I thought about it some more. And I realized that actually maybe that was why I was the right person yeah. to write the book. Yeah. 
because I wanted to write something that felt very non-judgmental. Um, you know, it wasn't coming from a person who'd spent all of their life dressed in kind of hemp, um, <laughs> sustainable hemp smock dresses. It was, uh, you know, meant to be from the perspective of somebody who really loves fashion and loves clothes and understands why people buy as much as they do. Um, but also just gently nudging people in the right direction and saying, hey, you know, here are all the important reasons that we need to do this for the planet and for society. But also here are the reasons it might actually just make you a little bit happier and also make it easier to get out of the house in the morning a bit quicker. So hopefully yeah. that's what I achieved with it. And um, yeah, I'm really like delighted by the fact that people are still discovering it and reading it and sending me nice messages about it even three years later. That bit about the happiness, I think is really important because like people know fast fashion is bad now. And there'll be yeah. people that are like, oh yeah, I got it from Shein and be like, oh, I know it's so bad. And it's like, well, you know, it's so bad. <laughs> I just keep doing it. Doing it. Yeah. and it's like they think it's okay by admitting that it's a really bad place to buy from mm. that that kind of undoes that point whereas if they knew more about how actually like their whole life could change or they could feel happier each day by shopping from their own wardrobe or secondhand like they wouldn't need to carry that guilt slash feel like they have to counteract that guilt so yeah I mean obviously mm. we want people to go and buy the book and read it in full but if you could share like one little tip from that book for everyone <laughs> to start that journey of breaking up with fast fashion what would it be um so the first thing I always tell people to do is unsubscribe from all of the email newsletters that you don't even remember signing up for because they are negging you into shopping without even realizing it every time you open your inbox there's yet another discount code yet another promo yet another mm -hmm. like must have yeah and that language is really insidious and we don't even realize it you know the phrases that people have been using to badger us into shopping it's like it's a must-have or get it or regret it you know quick it's you know this sale mm. is, um, this style is selling out you've got to get it now it's that urgency so I always say unsubscribe from all of those emails unfollow all of the influencers that make you feel you have to shop I'm sorry content creators but you know you are part of the problem if you're not part of the solution mm. and I do think social media has a lot to answer for um social media can also be a great help you know I've found so many amazing like sustainable fashion advocates and there are great influencers out there who rejoice in wearing the same stuff over and over again wearing secondhand that kind of thing but um yeah curate your digital feeds first mm. and you find like you have more time. I read so many more books the year that I was shopping <laughs> because every time I got on the bus, I wasn't immediately scrolling ASOS. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, I'll actually sit and read a book. And it felt mm. quite um, so yeah, that's the first thing I always recommend. And then it's always shop your own wardrobe first. So mm. don't immediately start like going, okay, well, if I can't shop at HM, where can I shop? It, the first step is take a step back, look at everything you already own. The chances are you've got so many clothes in your life that you've forgotten you have, or they're just screwed up at the back of a drawer and, you know, get things out, look at everything, have a bit of a dressing up session, style up some new outfits. And you'll be amazed that, you know, you can get that rush of a new outfit from stuff that you've maybe had for a few years. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And Jess recently got me on the vintage hype. Love so I am now ruthlessly going through my wardrobe, trying to get rid of things that I haven't worn. If I haven't worn it in, you know, more than a year, then mm -hmm. it's going straight on vintage. Um, and also if I see something now that I want from a shop, I'll 
challenge myself to find it on vintage yeah, or okay. in a charity shop and like then you've got it's like almost like a treasure hunt and like you get so much more of a thrill when you find it or something similar that does the job it's so true and also it's just testament to how quickly fashion moves through people's lives these days. yeah that you can be literally standing in whistles or wherever typing it into ebay depot yeah. chances are someone's already selling it yeah yeah agreed yeah and I do that with books actually there are some books that because they aren't new um I'm like okay well this is going to be on my charity shop list and I have a list of books that I'm like if I see this in a charity shop I'll buy it there because they're not like ones I like urgently need to read but ones I would like to Um, I do the same thing yeah yeah such a good idea just have a little list on your phone to remind yourself yeah exactly love that um well, thank you so much, Lauren. We really appreciate your time. Also, can I just say how weird it is that you're that, called Lauren? That was weird and... when I heard you say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you're called Lauren, and is it your publicist? My publicist, Jessica. Jess. Or Jess? I know when of... I when I like linked you guys in with her, and I said to her, I was like, weirdly, I've been approached by Lauren and Jess. <laughs> <laughs> and your book is pink it. and green, and we are pink and green. And you noticed it immediately, which is I fantastic. Did. <laughs> I'm even wearing pink and green today. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I've, I've kind of decided subconsciously that if I can just surround myself with as much pink and green as possible, it means that the book will sell really well. That's a good way. To yeah, yeah, it. I'm yeah. I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah, all the time. <laughs> um, oh, so okay. before we let you go. Um, a question we ask all our listeners is, is there a book you've read recently or not even recently, but a book that you've loved, new or old, that you'd like to reco? And actually, yeah. I'm also going to add in, seeing as it would be a miss if we didn't, what's your best ever charity shop find? Oh, OK, I'm going to answer that one first. Um, so it's got to be I've got a pair of buffalo um 90s leather clogs oh which yeah right <laughs> so <laughs> they're so dreamy I mean I'm always tempted to run and get them and show them <laughs> they're like they're like 70s style but also really 90s so they've got a massive wooden sole I mean they're really high nice um patchwork leather uppers um, nice with a strap and then like a heart sh- and a flower shaped metal buckle all right, if you can picture them. Oh my gosh. And they're by Buffalo. So obviously the brand, the Spice Girls wore. Um, <laughs> and they came through my charity shop that I volunteer in, Crisis Finsbury Park. Shout out to the best charity shop in London. <laughs> and so slightly naughty, they, I hadn't seen them in the shop. And this happens a lot if you're behind the counter um, and the um, managers will be putting stock out the whole time. But because you're serving people, on like a busy shift you don't necessarily mm. see kind of stuff that's hitting the shop floor so I hadn't spotted them and a woman brought them up to the counter and they were my size and everything and I'm a size seven and you don't always you know it's a bit harder sometimes to find slightly larger shoes they came up to the counter and immediately my heart plummeted because I was like oh my god I love them and I'm like <laughs> go and she said I think my friend would really like these can you keep them for her until the end of the day and I was like, yeah, okay, we can do that. But the rule is we don't keep stuff overnight. We can only keep it like until the end of the shift. And um, <laughs> her friend never came back for them. Yes. On the dot of seven o'clock as we were locking up the shop, I was like, these are mine. <laughs> and it just felt, it felt like kismet because obviously I'd written this book about the Spice Girls. I was obsessed with, you know, 90s fashion, Buffalo platforms, but I was also about to release How to Break Up With Fast Fashion and, and to promote that. So they became my virtual oh. shoes and I wore them for like all of my events. And oh. they're also just really beautiful. So I have them just like on display in my bedroom. Yeah. I love that. 
God knows. And it also ties in your new book. So all three books are linked exactly. to these. Oh, that's so yeah. great. I, I thought you were going to say that you you just bought them and you didn't wait for the friend <laughs> to come back and you were like, oh, sorry, they got sold, which I just saying would 100% have done. <laughs> yeah. On the record, I'm going to say I would never do that and leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, my a book I want to recommend. So I've read, you know, so many books recently that I'm sure you've already talked about. And I'm going to skip over those because I want to talk about a book called The Mutual Friend by Carter Bays. I don't know if you guys mm, have come No, I haven't read that. Okay, so it came out, I think it was last year or maybe the year before. I read it in one of the lockdowns. I remember actually I read it when I had COVID, um, but I'm pretty sure it would be a brilliant book, even if you you know weren't feverish. And it's by Carter Bays is a guy who uh, wrote How I Met Your Mother, which great show. Yeah, I mean it's not. I wasn't particularly why I was drawn to it, but I got sent. I got sent the proof. It's such a good book. It's so clever. It's so funny. It's set in 2015 or 2016. Um, and I, I have a bit of a thing about books that are kind of exploring the recent past. I think that's a really interesting, yeah, sort of place to be when you're reading fiction. And it's very much about the network of um, people that social media can kind of bring together, but in real life. And it's what it does really, really well is that kind of slightly heightened thing where you're reading a book that is ostensibly set in the real world as we know it, but it's slightly improbable, you know, so it almost feels a bit fantastical. Yeah, And that's something I love. And it is something I sort of almost try to do a little bit in pre-loved. It's like, I like books that kind of toe, like stroke a toe along the slightly magical, as in the way that people weave in and out of each other's lives doesn't always feel a hundred percent realistic, but it's really delicious. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a clever, clever, clever book. Like by the time I finished it, I was just in, in awe of him. But weirdly, I didn't really see much, pe- much hype around it in the UK. Obviously, I think it was probably a much bigger deal in America. But I didn't really see anyone talking about it over here. So I really recommend people go and read it because if you, you know, if you're a fan of like Monica Heisey, if you like books that are yes. funny and zeitgeisty and clever, but also have a real heart to them, um, I think you'd love it. It's brilliant. It's called The Mutual Friend. Right. I'm oh, adding it. that to my list immediately. And for listeners, we'll put it in the show notes. Great. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been lovely. Listeners, pre-order pre-loved oh that's a mouthful Mouthful. Uh, ready for when it comes out later this month you won't regret it thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure thanks so much lauren thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed today's episode then like subscribe and leave a rating and review it costs you nothing but it genuinely means the world to us and don't forget to share our podcast with your reading buddy too because they might like to listen and you can sign up to our monthly newsletter at www.bookrecords.com for a roundup of our monthly recommendations. Thank you so much for listening.